This is Ron Stockton. <clears throat> For those of us who lived through it, September 11th just doesn't seem to go away, does it? It's burned into our brains. I want to talk to you about the novel Falling Man by Don DeLillo. I had never read anything by DeLillo, even though he is considered one of the best novelists of our age. But I had picked up this novel in a used book sale, and it was sitting on my shelf. I was on my way overseas and took it with me on the plane. I was very glad I did. There was a line that jumped out at me. The second plane. By the time the second plane <clears throat> appears, we're all a little older and wiser. That is one of the most powerful details that those of us around remember from that morning. The second plane. Those details are burned into our minds as as if they are with us forever, which they are. I was on my way to class. I think it started at 9 o'clock or perhaps 9.30. A colleague had brought a television to the office, and I watched the first tower fall, just as I was walking out the door. I had heard on the way to campus that a plane had crashed into the <clears throat> World Trade Center, but that seemed like a tragedy rather than a catastrophe. Once before, a small plane had crashed into the Empire State Building, and this seemed like something similar. A distracted pilot, maybe. But then I saw that image. That whole magnificent building collapsing. It was raw and ugly and brutal. And the second tower was in flames. Somehow everyone knew that something beyond terrible had happened, and that somehow our world would never be the same. I went into the classroom, and the students were just sitting there, not knowing what to do. Cell phones were going off, and, a young Arab, and young Arab women were rushing to the sidewalks to get picked up by parents. No one knew what might happen, and Arab parents were probably thinking, better safe than sorry. Several area campuses had closed, and it was not clear what would happen at UM Dearborn. Our chancellor made a courageous decision that we would not close. I was later asked what I thought of that decision, and I said I completely agreed. Had we closed, we would have been suggesting that our campus, with its obvious Muslim and Arab population, was not safe for those people, or for anyone. We do not want to suggest to the world, even unintentionally, that we were afraid of our own students. We needed to be strong at a time when fear was the dominant emotion. As I went into the classroom, I thought about what I should do. Several colleagues had canceled classes. I considered that but decided that my obligation at that time was to maintain as much normalcy as possible. I decided to talk to my students to give them some insight into the nature of violence and mass murder. It wasn't as if I had time to prepare talking points, but I knew about political violence and about the Middle East and decided I could perform a service by just talking and negating bad information and bad understandings. There were already media stories that the Palestinians were behind this. They were even naming specific Palestinian groups who were the culprits. I told the students that the Palestinians were not involved. The Palestinian focus was upon their homeland. They were not going to waste their energy doing something like this, something totally unproductive, even counterproductive. Little did we know, but the Bush administration knew exactly who was behind this attack. In fact, the president had been given a top-secret national security briefing telling him that Osama bin Laden had sleeper cells in the country and they were planning to hijack airplanes. 
At the time, they thought those cells were going to hold those planes hostage to demand the release of the blind sheikh who had been behind the earlier 1993 attack on the World Trade Center and was now sitting in an American prison. To Bush's discredit, he never called a meeting of principles, that is, of everyone involved in intelligence, national security, and anti-terrorism, to discuss this threat. Michael Scheuer, the head of the Osama bin Laden watch unit, said he was running around the Pentagon with his hair on fire, as he put it, trying to get the administration to treat this threat seriously. He knew it was serious. Why didn't other people? As I was trying to be analytical in the face of mass murder, one of the students looking at his cell phone said, the second tower just fell. I had heard before coming to class that the World Trade Center had 100,000 people in the two towers, so I made a quick calculation. If everyone in the top third of those buildings had died, that would be 30,000 people. I told the class that number. As you might guess, they were shocked. In retrospect, it was a reasonable estimate, but was fortunately wrong. Little did I know that so many people would escape. In fact, little did anyone know. The area hospitals discharged everyone who was not in a life-threatening situation, anticipating a mass influx of injured people. To everyone's surprise, there was no influx. Everyone who died on that day died at the moment. A few came in with injuries or smoke inhalation, but not very many. It was binary. You either died or you escaped. Survival is one of the themes of Delilah, um, Delilah's book. As it follows the lives of two survivors. The story was that they were in a stairwell trying to get out. The female dropped a briefcase. The man picked it up and decided to look up her address to return it. She was black and he was white. Is that important? Is it important that she was light-skinned? Is it important that he was estranged from his wife? Married but estranged? Well, to people such as ourselves, those are just facts. A white male and a black female shared a moment in a historic tragedy. But to a master writer such as Delilah, there is much more to that fact than just a fact. These two people had seen the face of God in an explosion of fire and would never be the same. And as they struggled to understand the great significance of what happened, not just the facts, but the meaning of it all, a relationship emerges. Not an easy or predictable relationship, but a powerful one. Two other lines from the novel struck, stuck with me. God is what God allows. And... God is the voice that says, I am not here. The last quote I could understand. In the book of Elijah, the prophet is fleeing his enemies and experiences a series of cataclysms, explosions, earthquakes, floods, lightning. Finally, everything falls silent. And in the absence of everything, in a vacuum of total isolation, he senses the presence of God. But the metaphysical meaning of that story from Elijah is beyond me. I'm not good at deep, supposedly religious musings. Happy Face comments that everything works for the good of those who love the Lord, or it's all in God's plan, or the day of your death is determined from the beginning, leave me cold. But I know what happened to us as a nation and as a people. 
For the first time in our history, we experienced a level of catastrophe that was beyond anything we could have imagined just an hour earlier. Again, quoting Delilo, By the time the second plane appears, we are all a little older and wiser. And we are a nation afraid. One last quote from a really good book. It is about a falling man. Those people, perhaps 200 in total, who jumped from the towers rather than wait for the flames to consume them, and those who watched them die. In fact, in a sense, all of us watched them die. This was a televised mass murder in real time. That cry is still close to me. Not like something happening yesterday, but something always happening, over a thousand years happening, always in the air. If you have seen that iconic photo of the falling man, it is in your mind. And if you have not seen it, look it up. It will never leave you. To finish, I would like to quote from two comments on a Facebook post I made. The first is from a former student, the second from a friend at the university. First, the student. I had just started kindergarten. Most of my memories related to this are from subsequent years, moments of silence at school, watching the documentaries. There's only three things I clearly remember from that day. I was in half-day kindergarten and only went to school in the afternoon, so I was home with my mom that morning. The TV was never on in our house during the day. The earliest it would be turned on was 7 o'clock p.m. My mom got a call from her sister, told me to go into the other room, then turned on the TV around 9 a.m. My mom still sent me to school. It was only a block away, and she wanted to keep as much normalcy for me as possible. Half of my class never showed up. Every five minutes or so, there was an announcement over the intercom asking for a student to come to the office with their things. Their parents were picking them up. Later that evening, my family was out in our front yard, and a plane flew overhead. It had to have been military. It was the only plane we saw for days. Living 25 minutes north of the Detroit airport, this was very noticeable. I was old enough to remember that day, but young enough that I don't really remember what life was like before. It's strange to think how this seems so recent and has impacted so many aspects of life in our country and around the world. Yet, I have classmates in my doctoral program who weren't even born when the towers fell. Then a colleague who says there is good guess that falling man was Jonathan Briley. My friend posted a report on Wikipedia. By the way, many people jumped, but falling man was a specific person from a Pacific specific photo. The Falling Man, an article about the photograph by American journalist Tom Junod, was published in the September 2003 issue of Esquire magazine. It was adapted into a documentary film by the same name. The article gave the possible identity of the falling man as Jonathan Briley, a 43-year-old sound engineer who worked at Windows on the World. Briley had asthma and would have known he was in danger when smoke began to pour into the restaurant. He was initially identified by his brother, Timothy. The restaurant's executive chef also suggested that the man was Briley based on his body type and clothes. 
In one of the photos, the falling man's white jacket was blown open, revealing an orange t-shirt similar to the one that Briley wore. Briley's sister Gwendolyn told reporters of the Sunday Mirror, When I first looked at the picture and saw it was a man, tall, slim, I said, that could be Jonathan. Briley's remains were recovered the day after 9-1-1. For those interested, I have two other podcasts on September 11th. One is about how we experienced that day, especially on campus and in Dearborn. No one knew what to do. Everything was improvised. The second is called The Day After and features two talks I delivered. Thanks for listening.